Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up in this episode. When the physiology wins, in this case, the athlete breaks. Just sadness for a young girl that had to go through a situation that looked and appeared to be um, incredibly toxic. If they don't toe the line, they don't get a paycheck. If they don't get a paycheck, they're they're moving on. This isn't normal to be this lean all year round. Let's get a brand to put money behind the health of athletes instead of the medals. Welcome to the Science of Sports. Uh, my name is Mike Finch and I'm here with Professor Ross Tucker. And uh, just a few weeks ago, we came across the story of Mary Kane. In fact, anybody who lives anywhere in the world and has been watching the interwebs around athletic uh, performance and probably watched some of the big stories uh, that appeared on many of the big international news sites, Mary Kane was a big feature. In fact, the story broke on the New York Times. And here was a story of, a, of an athlete that uh, had basically been, uh, as far as she was concerned, fat shamed by uh, as an athlete working with uh, Alberto Salazar at the Nike Oregon Project. And then suddenly this term, which I had never heard of before, called Red S or Reds, as you whoever wants, whoever wants to describe in different ways, suddenly came into the zeitgeist of sports. And uh, Mary came, in some ways, became the poster girl of this uh, particular uh, issue. Um, so Ross and I really have chatted a lot about this uh, particular case, the Mary Kane issue particularly, where we'll get into that a little bit. And then we've also got an interview with two very special people a bit later on, on the podcast where we talk in depth about the effect of this condition, particularly on female athletes, but it's not only limited to female athletes, um, but also to talk to an elite athlete herself and her, um, her attitude towards women in sport and women in athletics as well. So Ross, just to kind of give us a bit of a background, the Mary Kane story, an elite level runner in the States, a very talented youngster, goes into the Nike Oregon Project run by Alberta Salazar, she talks very openly in a, in a video op-ed piece in the New York Times about how she was literally shamed. She One day she's running and she just kind of runs into the forest because she's so upset. And it, it, it creates this massive groundswell of support for her. But maybe you can give us a bit of a perspective from your side, how you saw that thing unraveling. Yeah, Mary Kane was a teenage phenom and then she sort of dropped off the map. And so to come back onto the map like this was always going to make a splash. And then the specifics of what she said were so startling. Not, not necessarily because they are surprising, but because they were being said. Um, yeah. It's kind of like when you go on safari, say, for the African listeners who've done it, and you see a leopard. You're surprised to see it, but you're not surprised that it exists. Yeah. And that's kind of what this felt like. The, 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 the notion of elite athletes pushing the boundaries of body fat and body mass should not surprise anyone because especially for distance runners, cyclists, these are what are called weight dependent sports. And so yeah. theoretically, and that's the key, let's bold and underline that, lighter is better because it's physics. Yeah. The problem is that there comes a point where lighter becomes unhealthy because the body, the body doesn't want to go below a certain bar. And so when we see Kane talking about this and she says that Alberta Salazar was telling her she had to hit 114 pounds and she's not short. Yeah. So this is this is a pretty low body mass. And then of course she triggers 
number of testimonies. Cara Goucher follows her. Amy Yoder Begley follows her. Jackie Arison follows her. Phoebe Wright. Uh, then across the Atlantic in England, they find athletes who've, who've gone through similar with their coaches. So this is not unique to Salazar. It's not unique to Kane. It's a, it's a, it's a symptom of the times and the competitive, brutal nature of sport and of the ignorance of some people around making weight the target and the, the be-all. And, and, and sadly, what happens with Kane is that she's, she's pushed to the point of clinical harm. She develops a number of injuries, stress fractures. Uh, she loses her period for three years, and we'll get into why that's bad. And eventually, she becomes suicidal. Um, not not because of the necessarily the weight shaming, but I think it was all bundled up. She since spoke in a remarkable interview with uh, Cara Gaucha and and uh, the Clean Sport Collective, where she she talks about how she just idolized Salazar, yeah. and she felt so strongly that she was letting him down. And herself down because of because she's letting him down, and it just spiraled out of control. And she had no out, and uh, sadly, it it did for her running career professionally. I think what surprised me a little bit about this case is that I've covered athletics for many years, and I've spoken to a lot of female athletes over that time. And I always believe that if you're going to be pushing into the upper reaches of elite female sport, or uh, then you're, you're, you're going to suffer some consequences and losing a period would be one of those consequences. So I was kind of a bit surprised. And I admit my initial reaction to the Mary Kane story was, here was an athlete that just couldn't cut it in yeah. that tough camp um, where they were trying to produce world-class world class athletes. Of course, we've had lots of talk about the Nike Oregon project, um, you know, not only to do with this, but you know, with the Salazar case before that. But it, it struck me, first of all, as somebody that wasn't prepared to kind of knuckle down and make the sacrifices needed to be at the top level. But I agree now, looking back on it, it was a very naive and somewhat um, uh, clinical approach to that because that wasn't the case. It, it, there's, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that what was happening there wasn't correct and shouldn't be correct. Oh, it was, it was, I mean, I know what you mean, but it's more than just not correct. It was, it was outright abusive. Um, and because she's not the only one, we can say that with a degree of confidence. When you, when you are, screaming at athletes that they're too fat and that they've got the biggest butts on the start line and they're never going to make it unless they lose weight and you're telling them that they've got to look like someone else that that is that is harmful to someone um emotionally and then it has physical consequences so i'm glad i don't have to convince you that it's not just a case of you can't cut it and one point on this is it might well be that kane never had what it took to get from the 405 406 that she ran as a teenager into the 357s that she, she would have needed to win an Olympic medal. That happens all the time. When we, when we spoke on this podcast about talent ID, you can go back and find it in our, in our archives, we spoke about how when you try and predict someone's adult sporting potential when they are still a teenager, you are placing a bet with long odds. Yeah. And I think part of what happened with Kane is that that bet comes in and she becomes the 17-year-old phenom with this big Nike deal. She moves over to, to Nike. And something I didn't realize is that she was quite unhappy with her school athletic career at that point. And Salazar, quote unquote, saved her from that. Yeah. So there's this emotional attachment. There's this living the dream as a young girl at that stage, becoming a young woman. And it seems to me that Salazar was just unequipped to deal with what then transpired. And and his approach to how he dealt with his, his athletes, the woman athletes, was just so far below a necessary duty of care 
because a coach a coach is obviously responsible for performance and weight does influence performance but you you don't get there by setting the bar at 114 and say that unless you get this nothing else will work you work on all the other yeah. things and you let the person find the weight that is optimal for them and he he seemed to get it backwards there were two just quickly there were two unbelievable things in that case what one was after about a year, she, she's now got menstrual dysfunction. She hasn't had a period in a year. He takes her to a doctor. Yeah. That's the good stuff. And, she, and he's there in the meeting. But he, he's, in the, <laughs> he's in the consult. Yeah. It's, it's outrageous. Why is, it, why is an adult male coach sitting in with a – it's just it's mind-boggling. Yeah. Because you think, oh, well, he's outsourced the, the clinicals. No. And then when the doctor prescribes her the, the drugs, which is now the solution, right, because that's Nike Ogan Project way – um, Salazar becomes the person who's dispensing them and, yeah. and telling her to take them. It's outrageous. And were it not for her parents, um, her father's a medical doctor, maybe her mom also, I don't want to miss, but definitely I know her dad, telling her don't take the drug. She may have, she may have done it because, hey, yeah. it's Alberto. He says it, I do it. I mean, there are a number of issues there. I mean, one of the things <laughs> that I think a lot of people forget, and we have discussed this in the, in the Alberto Salazar um, podcast, which we did, is that obviously there was pressure on Alberto also to, bring out athletes that were going to be competitive so there was this kind of double-sided one one of that her trying to be the best that she could be with the best coach in her mind and then Salazar under pressure to produce here's this young star who could be the next superstar in in American athletics and pushing her because he needs to make sure that it works and he can keep his job and keep the Nike Oregon project still going yeah and I guess only they'll know who's answerable to who in that setup but it seemed to me that Salazar pretty much had the run of that show yeah and it was his naked ambition and, and on that naked ambition, just before I tell you the second story, remember that Cara Goucher testified that when she was coming back from a pregnancy, he gave her cytomel, which is a thyroid hormone, which apparently had been prescribed for Galen Rupp. And, and, and Salazar told Cara to take it also to lose weight. So he had this, he had this real obsession. It, this, weight, was, weight was a big deal to him. And he was using drugs to drive his athletes to the target weight that he needed them to. But he also had... From the stories, he's, he had this really warped perception. So, in fact, two two stories. Kane tells us in the podcast, which again I highly recommend. Yeah, it's brilliant. The, the day before um, her World Junior title that she won, first American to win a 1500 World Junior title, he takes her out to the track and he makes her do 100 meter strides. He says to her, "You've got to go under 13 seconds," which she does, 12.5. She runs him in. She then goes and wins the title, and he tells her afterwards, he says, I made you do those strides because I thought you were too heavy to break 13. So I, I listen to this, and I'm thinking, like, what, what is going on in this man's mind? Because if he's right, then he's effectively, the day before a World Junior Final, he's shamed his athlete into thinking she's too heavy to race well, right? Yeah. He's not right because she runs them in 12.5, but he still holds the opinion that she was. So it's almost like he's got this hypothesis He's designed an experiment to test it. His experiment disproves him, and he still believes. So he's, there's something muddled in his thinking. And then the other one was Amy, Amy uh, Yoda. Um, he would often tell her that she's too big and too fat and she's too flabby and she's sent off to be weighed. And he would weigh them publicly. I mean, come on. Yeah. That would happen on a Tuesday. <laughs> and then in her own words, by Friday, he'd tell her she's looking unbelievably lean. Her husband is a lucky guy. Okay, so first point, that's gross. And secondly, you don't go from too flabby to lean within two, three days. So, so what's he actually looking at? Yeah. Is, he, is he judging hydration status and thinking it's weight? 
this is not this is not the practice of someone who, who actually understands these issues in a way that would be befitting of world's best. Is it, coach. Is it not just misguided mind games? I mean, is it not just? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not a I'm not a coach, and I know you, you aren't. I mean, you have you have coached a fair amount of people, but not at that level. So you could argue the mind games are part of that psychology yeah. of getting somebody to perform. That's a that's a fair it's question. A harsh, it's a harsh mentality. And I was, it would be amazing to ask every single athlete. Let's say there's a hundred of them who've been through that camp, or even any others, and ask them. Would that method work on you? Maybe, you know, maybe one in ten people respond. Well, it's the carrot or the stick mentality, isn't it? Some yeah. respond well to the carrot, other ones respond better to the stick. I know from rugby coaches that some of them work out players who respond well to criticism and shaming, and some respond well to uh, to compliment. And if, you, and if you do it in reverse, you destroy people. And yeah. so if Salazar's doing that for the purpose of mind games, then he'd better be unbelievably good at reading people. And yeah. he's not. But she wasn't. Because, <laughs> because look how many people he harmed. So, yeah. so even if he was, it's a failed mind game. And that's the point here is like, why would you do something that has so little upside and so much downside yeah. to your assets? Because that's what they were to him. They were his, his, uh, his prized athletes. Who well, maybe were he win just in felt that he had had some success with athletes using that method, and some of them had responded. So, well, if as athletes don't respond, they're just not suitable to him, and they must move on. Perhaps, but, but again, he had had some success. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. But again, like I think coaches, just like doctors, have a duty of care to their athletes. Yeah, and that duty of care means you have to look after their health. And again, in Kane's using Kane as a specific, by the time you are amenorrheic, which means you've lost your period for six months, there's a problem. Yeah. One year, there's by three years, you've got to be asking serious questions about whether that athlete's health is not optimized, but even okay under your care. And in his case, it wasn't. But again, there was nowhere for her to turn. She had no outlet, no escape. Everything was internal. Even and actually, this was one of the most egregious things I heard. Even when they spoke to the psychologist, a guy called Darren Treasure, it would go back to Salazar, so it wasn't confidential. And then Salazar and Treasure would often joke with athlete A about athlete B's issues. Yes. It's disgraceful. So yeah. that whole setup was just an unbelievably toxic, abusive system. And Mary Kane is the lighthouse that's shown it. Yeah. But I guess for our purposes, if we move on beyond Mary Kane, there are thousands of other examples, not, not six-figure sponsored elite athletes but club runners hobby joggers recreational athletes yeah who may be struggling also with these issues around weight so i think that's really what the rest of this podcast and and the second part need to maybe get into so let's talk about what we're actually talking about today and that is the relative energy deficiency in sport which is this thing called red s or reds depending on who you want to talk to we've heard many different ways of saying it but it's like uh, it sounds like because we'll hear from some canadians who say red Reds and Reds, Americans yeah. who say red is. So it's yeah. like it's like color and color. But it's typed it, it's it's spelled R E D hyphen S. Yes. For some reason. Right. I don't know why why is the hyphen in there? Is that just a way of saying it's in sport? Because there are obviously ways of this being relevant in non sporting activity. I don't know. All I know is I'm exercise, I'm hoping you're, you're exercise scientists. scientists love these acronyms <laughs> and acronyms. Acronyms <laughs> and I never understand. anyways, that's what they've gone with. Um, anyway, so that's what it's called, relative <laughs> energy deficiency in sport. And that's, yeah. that's really what the subject of this is about. Yeah. And this came out as a result of her. She didn't come up with the term, but why, did, why were people talking about this in relation to Mary Kane? Well, you said you hadn't heard of it before, but in actual fact, 
episode five of this podcast, Uh-oh. we sat here with Dom Scott, South African elite runner. Yes. And we spoke about it. And I actually mentioned it in that podcast. I messed it up at the time, I remember. <laughs> but as a, as a magazine editor who's worked in running, you will have heard of the female triad. Yes. Right. So many listeners will have heard of that. So the female triad was a syndrome or a condition. I, don't know, I might have used the word syndrome wrongly there. Scratch that. It's a condition that is characterized by three things. Menstrual dysfunction. In other words, people lose their periods for a period of time, a certain yeah. number in a period of time. Low bone mineral density, which can then lead to osteoporosis, stress fractures, and so on. And low energy availability with or without a, a disorder in eating. So you don't necessarily have to have a disorder, an eating disorder, in order to have low energy availability. But it's those three things. Just, to, just Energy you, availability, yeah. low bone mineral density, and amenorrhea or menstrual dysfunction. So two of those you can measure quite easily. One of, the, one of them is amenorrhea, and the second one is the you, bone density. But you, how do you measure energy? So f- quickly backtracking, yeah. amenorrhea can be quite tricky to measure because if you're on a pill or if you have an IUD, then you don't experience periods, but you may still be amenorrheic because you're not having a menstrual cycle. So in situations like that, you actually have to have hormones measured. And when we talk to one of our athlete guests on this issue, I think that's something I want to explore with them because I think that's probably quite common. Bone mineral density is just a DEXA scan. You can have it assessed. It's not cheap, but you can have your bone mineral density assessed. And then the other one you asked was? Well, energy so, availability. Right, so energy availability has a definition. There's two components to it. It's energy intake, so food, how much goes into the body, minus energy expenditure from exercise. Right. So, and these are not real numbers, but let's say the energy intake is 100 units and the energy expenditure from exercise is 20 units, the energy availability is 80. And the best way to think about that is that's the energy that's available for the body to do its thing. It's yeah. like that's the energy that has to keep the lights on, basically. <laughs> yeah. So defending blood pressure, getting blood to the brain, making new enzymes, rebuilding proteins, digestive function, nervous system, cardiovascular, all the, all the things that your bodies, as you listen to me waffle on, are doing come or are fueled by that number yeah and the problem is when your energy intake drops below your energy expenditure by too much too quickly or for too long or or three then your body goes into a state of actually saying i'd better do something here to conserve yeah because i can't sustain all these different functions so what happens is it shuts off reproduction Mm. now that makes sense because being pregnant is incredibly metabolically costly. And so if you think about it from an evolutionary point of view, if you were in a time of plenty food and things were abundant, that's when you could get pregnant, you could reproduce because you had the energy to sustain the cost. When there was a time of, let's say, famine or starvation or energy deprivation, it makes sense that your body would say, let me switch off those things that are not needed. And so the menstrual cycle then halts as a consequence of this low energy availability. So it, it's, I hope people appreciate that it's actually quite a clever thing. In fact, it would, be, it would have been selected out because people who didn't cease menstrual function would have probably been <laughs> yeah. eliminated from the, from the gene and, pool. And as we'll see with our guest a bit later on, which we'll introduce very shortly, that there are also signs for men to watch out for in this case. So it's right. not so, so there are many issues. So thanks for the reminder. So 
that's the female triad, okay? Yeah. And then because, and then we'll explain why in a moment, but that menstrual dysfunction and the loss of the periods causes bone issues that then lower the bone mineral density and that's where the osteoporosis happens. The, the, reason, the, the reason we now talk about red S is because the female triad was deemed to be too narrow in scope and red S is effectively an expansion or a uh, more comprehensive terminology for the same thing because what's been realized is that it's not just those three things. So when you are low in energy, you have this low energy availability, it doesn't only affect the menstrual function and the um, bone. Yeah, It affects the endocrine system, so that's hormones. It affects your metabolic system, your blood, the development and growth, psychology. There's cardiovascular consequences. There are gastrointestinal consequences, immunological consequences. And so Red S was really just a, a new iteration of the same thing. And coming to your question, it also was recognized that men can suffer from many of the same things. Obviously, not the menstrual dysfunction, but all the others yeah. can happen in men also as a consequence of this low energy availability. So, I mean, when did you first hear of this term? Is it is it a is it a new term, or is it? Because I think what's important for people to understand is that when I first heard of this, I, I was thinking it's kind of is not just is it not just overtraining? And I remember you quite yeah. saying to me. P podcast, don't, it's not. It's certainly not just overtraining. Yeah, although, as I as I hope we'll explore with our guests, um, the path towards red S has many road signs along the way that look like overtraining. So yeah. you you can you can misinterpret and say actually you know what this isn't this isn't too bad. All I need to do is adjust the training, which is what you do need to do with red S. But but they're not quite the same. So by scale and concept, they do differ. When did it first emerge? In 2014, the IOC commissioned a group that came up with a consensus statement on this. That was updated in 2018, and that's a group of experts in the field led by a Canadian woman called Margot Mountjoy. And so anyone who's interested in this, please go and have a look for that paper. Um, if you just look up Red S IOC consensus, you'll yeah. find it, and it's available. Okay, so one of the consequences that we've talked about is is this bone density issue. Yeah, just explain how that happens because of this condition. Yeah, so I think we'll pick that up. I mean, I've just listed uh, almost ten body functions or physiological systems that are affected, but the bone is one where obviously Mary Kane's spoken of her injuries and stress fractures are often the sign of of an issue. So what happens is that the the menstrual cycle is really important, obviously for reproduction, but the estrogen that is released as a result of menstruation, the menstrual cycle rather, has pretty important jobs to do when it comes to bone health. Now your bone is an active tissue. It's not just standing there like a block of concrete and it's constantly being turned over. And that turnover is a balance between what's called resorption and formation. Mm -hmm. right? So it's, two, it's a seesaw basically and it has to constantly be in balance. And what estrogen does is it switches off bone resorption, which is the process by which bone is broken down so you get less breakdown and it switches on bone building. And so the net result is that you gain bone mass or bone density. Right. Now, the, the problem that happens when you have low energy availability is that it's all controlled by this little region in your brain called the hypothalamus. You've heard of this? Yep. Yeah. The hypothalamus is kind of like the master conductor. If your, if your body was a symphony orchestra, the hypothalamus would be its conductor. And its job is to make sure that all the right notes are played by the right instrument at the right time at the right volume, okay? Yeah. yeah. The hypothalamus it's is quite a responsible job the hypothalamus has got. <laughs> yes. 
And and it, it's 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 I, this was always my favorite aspect of physiology was this control of homeostasis is what it's called. And the hypothalamus is sensitive to energy availability. So when when we deprived of energy, for example, starvation or, or crash diets, or an elite athlete who's now doing what Mary Kane did under the pressure of a Salazar, our hypothalamus detects this. And potentially it's cortisol, it's a signaling molecule, this is another hormone in the body. And what happens is the hypothalamus then secretes less GnRH, this is gonadotrophin-releasing hormone. Normally it's a, it releases these gonadotrophin-releasing hormone, that goes to the pituitary, the pituitary responds to this by releasing two hormones called FSH and LH, follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. Those two hormones then act in either the ovaries in women or the testes in men, mm -hmm. and they stimulate the release of estrogen in women and testosterone in men. So you can see that if we mess our system up at the top, the hypothalamus, because of low energy availability or cortisol, then the end result is something goes wrong at the bottom. And so now we have less estrogen or less testosterone. And that's where all these consequences come from. So for instance, Kane spoke about being sick all the time. Yeah. That's the immune function problem of low energy. Um, there are cardiovascular risks because one of the other things estrogen does is it makes the walls of our blood vessels more elastic. And so yeah. when we don't have estrogen, our walls are less elastic and we're more prone to strokes and clots and so on. The problem with the bone and the reason that's so often spoken about is when you are a young woman, Mary Kane, or even, even and same for men, don't want to neglect the men here, we've got a window of opportunity to build our bones. And it's when we, it's from adolescence up to our late 20s, early 30s. By the time we get to 30 odd, bone mass starts to decline. Mm -hmm. And you can exercise and you can train and you can eat well and slow that rate of decline. But it's very difficult to reverse it. So pretty much you've got to cash in while you can. And when a young athlete deprives themselves and develops this menstrual dysfunction, they lose their periods and they can't lay down bone, they are basically starting out on a journey that's not going to end well, obviously. Because in the you, long term, especially. In the long term. So yeah. by the time you're 50, 60 odd, you've got some real problems. The, the good news is... Being, being osteoporosis. Exactly. Yeah. The good news is that this is reversible. Like the loss of the period can be reversed. Um, it may take time. Um, but if you correct the energy imbalance, which is to say you eat more often, you eat higher quality foods, and you eat when you're hungry. Because mm. again, your, your body, when you are hungry... It's because your body sensed low energy and it tells you eat. And if you ignore that signal because you're eating three meals a day and it must be at certain times, you're actually causing this metabolic issue. So that's the solution. And then to exercise less often and less hard so that you don't get that cortisol spike. So those are some of the, some of the solutions that we can explore with our athlete guests in the next couple of episodes. But that's a, that's a rundown of why this is so harmful. And, and coming back to the issue around Cain and Salazar, the problem is you can probably find athletes who are durable enough and tough enough and the body is remarkable enough that they can lose weight and you can push them down, 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 and they'll still perform. Yeah. And they'll hold that peak for six months, maybe a year, but eventually physiology wins. And unfortunately, when the physiology wins in this case, the athlete breaks um, and the consequence then is ultimately performance is not just impaired, it's stopped. So the, the, the key here is the coach, for all the physics and theory around low mass equals faster runner, the coach can ultimately break the runner and then there's no speed at all because he's not looking after the health. So 
a, a performing athlete is a healthy athlete and the coach should rather look to manage diet in other words, are you eating healthily? That's all. That's the question the coach needs to ask. And are you training at the right volume? Because if you get that balance right, you'll be at your optimal weight range. Not your optimal point, but your optimal weight range. So we're going to introduce you um, in the next couple of seconds to Trent Stillingworth and his wife, Hilary. Uh, Trent was um, is an applied sports psychologist with a specialization in the area of performance nutrition based out of Victoria in Canada and uh, with a special interest in the subject that we're talking about today. And we also invited Hilary, his wife, onto the podcast purely because she's also represented Canada at the Olympics and the World Championship level, so a very high-level 1,500-meter athlete. And we really needed to make sure that we had that perspective from a female perspective particularly. And um, we're going to be introducing them very shortly. But um, just to give us some background on why Trent is, 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 is almost a leader in this category in, in many ways globally and, and a man is trying to create awareness around this condition. Yeah, so I've known Trent as long as I can remember being on Twitter. Um, he's, he's highly worth a follow, by the way, because yeah, he, posted, he posts some interesting stuff from conferences. And he was in Doha, for instance, recently at the World Champs helping the Canadian race walkers deal with the heat. And he gave us really, I think, unique insights into that. So at T. Stellingworth, which is spelled exactly like it sounds, except it's got two Fs at the end. T. So Stellingworth. Stelling, as you would imagine, Stelling, S-T-E-L-L-I-N-G, and then Worth, W-E-R-F-F. That's his Twitter handle. So that's we've given him the Science of Sport bump. Um, yep. Go follow him on Twitter because he's pretty good. And and I've, I've, I've seen these tweets and I'm like, this is the guy I want to talk to about heat and uh, performance and altitude because he's really good at that aspect of it. He's an applied physiologist. But then he commented on the cane issue and as coincidence would have it, was attending a conference in Canada specifically about Red S just last week. And I remember about a year ago, I engaged with him on Twitter in a thread that he posted about Hillary because he'd published a paper in which he had actually tracked her body fat and her body mass and her hormone cycles and so on over about 10 years of her professional career. Yeah. And he, and he introduced me to this concept of body weight periodization, where he showed how she'd go up and down over the season in, in order to peak and so on. And he had, I thought, pretty good insights. So the opportunity to get the Stelling Wirfs, the couple, <laughs> um, and hear from a physiologist and an athlete who I think is now a coach, Hillary, and they really understand this stuff, was too good to pass up. And I think that would they will give us really valuable insight. So Trent and Harry, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. Uh, it's been a traumatic couple of weeks at the time that we're doing this podcast because of the Mary Kane issue. And we're going to talk to you a little bit about uh, your involvement and Hillary's experience as an elite athlete herself. Uh, but uh, you're talking to us from Victoria and Canada. And the last time I was there was as far back as 1994 when I arrived on a plane. It was an SAA flight and I drove from the airport to the harbour. And I remember thinking, if there is a heaven, it's going to look a lot like Victoria. Does it look the same as it does back in 1994? <laughs> it's probably changed a little bit, but it is still very beautiful and I think one of the best places in the world to train. I, t I tell you, there was a place, uh, a restaurant near the actual town, and I still think it was the best nachos I've ever had. I don't know whether there's a famous nachos place in, in Victoria still, but uh, I remember, I still to this day remember the taste of that nachos in a place called Victoria, Canada. <laughs> the the food scene and the coffee scene here is is top notch. So yeah, who knows? <laughs> well, you're very lucky to live where you do, and uh, we're literally on the opposite side of the world where we are here in South Africa. So we're talking uh, at our night time and your your morning time, isn't it? Yep, that's right. 
So tell us, I mean, let's start off with you, Trent. What, what was your reaction to the Mary Kane story that broke in the New York Times? Yeah, I probably had a lot of initial emotions. Um, first and foremost, just sadness for a young girl that had to go through a situation that looked and appeared to be um, incredibly toxic and, and high on the harassment scale. Um, that, that was probably my first emotion. My second emotion is those of us that work, you know, at, at the coalface of sport, We've unfortunately seen and or experienced a fair amount of these stories in the background. And so all the tweets and all the um, uh, information coming out from lots of other females and, and males too uh, aren't, isn't surprising um, to me in one iota. Um, we uh, had a Canadian athlete uh, with the group for a while, Cam Levins, who uh, publicly apologized and also had admitted that there was an obsession with weight with, uh, with that group at at that time. And, um, certainly as someone who works with athletics Canada and, and with cam, uh, uh, you know, I, I was a step removed from that, from that inner circle, but also had a sense that there, there was that obsession going on. And, um, yeah, so there was, there was a lot of emotions there and, and, uh, but also unfortunately, um, I wasn't that surprised. I mean, were you not surprised purely because you felt that it was endemic in elite level athletics? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily endemic. I, I think, um, uh, in some pockets of situations, there's misconceptions around body weight and performance and body composition and performance and what that is and what that isn't. Um, uh, there, there's other instances where I know a lot of athletes like Jen Ryan's had a blog today where, uh, it was a very positive blog about her continual menstrual cycle throughout her entire running career. And she, she's had a, a quite a heck of a running career. And so, um, I wasn't surprised because, um, unfortunately either purposely or, or consciously or subconsciously, um, there's a lot of young athletes that get into trouble, uh, just like Mary Kane did. And, um, and so the, the prevalence, um, at the sub elite level and development level is probably actually a lot higher than at the elite level. Um, Perhaps there's Darwinistic pressures in that athletes don't even make it to the elite level. And, and therefore, the concept of REDS, relative energy deficiency in sport, um, although the prevalence rates need to be established, clearly still, um, my sense is, is actually less at the elite level. Yeah. Hilary, I, I know that you know, we've got three guys here talking about women's sport, <laughs> which is the reason why we brought you in. And, and, and not only because you're a woman, but also you've competed at the very highest level. Tell us a bit about your experience at that level and the requirements that you felt you needed to reach to get to the, the, the finals that you did. You, you represented your country in the 1500-meter final um, at world championship level. So you, you, you got to the top, top level. What was the sacrifice that you understood needed to happen to be there? Yeah, I think um, it's important for from my career to have the perspective that um, most or, yeah, the majority of my elite career was post um, puberty. And I think that really, really helped me and that um, I started training hard after I hit puberty and I didn't make my first Olympics until age 31. So the some of the sacrifices were, um, yeah, just in training and in, um, you know, getting all those little details right when it was the right timing. And that was in an elite period where I was in my 20s and 30s. And so there was times where we were optimizing body composition, but we are also from a health perspective looking at the majority of the year, 
being in a great energy balance. And, um, and so the sacrifices of that were just training hard and recovering well. And then in the period of competition that we're just refining some of those body composition, um, metrics and, and, you know, peaking for the elite time of year. So for me, I don't look back and think that there was sacrifices of my health and we monitored that really closely. So, um, yeah, and I have had two kids <laughs> since then and, and one in between Olympics. So I think we, we got it right. And I know, unfortunately that my story isn't as common because I've trained with lots of athletes who aren't able to bridge the gap after treating their bodies not great as a junior or, or having maybe not the best leadership or support network around them to teach them how to do that properly. And so they had a development um, time in their careers, pushed it over the edge um, so they couldn't peak at the right times. And so unfortunately with Mary Kane, um, she was so brave to come out and we need more people talking about that because this isn't the only story, um, especially at that junior development age. I mean, Ross, we've been talking about this in the podcast. It's almost like a bit of a, a sort of a Me Too campaign in athletics that's coming out now. Because what's surprising about this to me is that it's it's so insidious in the sport and in different pockets of the sport, as Trent has explained. But in a way, it seems weird that it hasn't come out more often. Why has it been covered up so much? Well, not covered up, sort of almost ignored. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. If we look at stakeholders in sport that control athletes' careers, in some ways, it individual sports like athletics, people in theory should be in a position to speak out more easily compared to team sports where you're going to be selected against and, and, and other complexities there. But that said, um, a lot of these athletes are within training camps and training groups where if they don't toe the line, they don't get a paycheck. And if they don't get a paycheck, they're they're moving on. And so um, there's unbelievable pressures um, coming at our athletes that are a lot different than 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, our athletes are training much earlier, much harder. And so, you know, I think there's these concepts at times that, oh, our athletes are, aren't as strong as they used to be. But the pressures that they're facing in the social media and the context of body image on social media and Instagram and the sponsorship deals and the amount of um, training these kids do at younger ages to specialize or not, like we could get into that whole thing. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's apples to oranges. And so I, I think that there's just a lot of um, uh, social pressures there to look a certain way to be, and to toe the line. Yeah. Um, one of the most startling stats that I saw in, in, in reading up on this in the aftermath of the New York Times piece comes from an academic paper, and I want to get your thoughts on it. It, it talks about surveys have reported that less than 50% of physicians, coaches, physiotherapists, and trainers could identify the components of the triad, namely 
low energy availability, menstrual dysfunction, and low bone mineral density. 19% of high school nurses could identify the triad components. In a survey of 931 physicians, only 37% were aware of the triad, and only half of them were comfortable treating or referring a patient. I, f I find those numbers astonishing because I suppose it shows we, we take for granted because it's where we live and work. We know these things, but it seems that there's massive ignorance about them also. I read another one where 44% of high school girl cross-country runners feel that it's normal for them to lose their periods during cross-country season. So I, I guess in response to Mike's question, it doesn't come out because it's just accepted as part of the price you pay to be a distance runner. The number one thing I think to approach this whole area is prevention and with prevention, it's education. And you've, you've nailed the stats there, Ross. And, um, and that's, you know, that's talking about, um, the triad, which has had a lot longer of a runway of research and communication. And we now know that the triad's a very important part, but within a larger, um, phenomenon called REDS, relative energy deficiency in sport that affects males and females and it affects more than just bones and it affects, um, uh, yeah, health and performance outcomes. And so a huge part of this is an educational piece, I think, outside of our strict sports circles, because I would hope everyone in our sports circles is now aware of this. Um, that said, and Hillary made a good point um, a few days ago, is that Again, we, we all feel, and I think you could talk to a lot of experts, that the prevalence is way higher in development in junior athletes. And for them, their primary care physician is your general practitioner, your general, your GP, your general physician, not a sport necessarily a sports med physician. So they're even further step removed from this information yeah. and awareness that this, this even exists. And like you had mentioned, um, High school girls about their um, physician saying it was okay to completely yes, normal that yeah I now am coaching and I deal with seventeen to twenty three year olds um, in the university setting and this is a conversation that I have with any incoming female athlete about do you get a regular period and it's often no and then it's okay have you had a conversation with your doctor about this and it's they have not mentioned it yes they know or they haven't asked me or it they say it's normal i'm a runner and that's just how it is and that's so disappointing to me because then the education isn't getting through that they're in this crucial bone building stage of their life and to get those important bone density um, measures that you have to get your period and not just by a hormone replacement or an oral contraceptive. Yeah. You need to get your period naturally. And if you don't, you're not going to get to the elite level because your bones are going to be um, compromised. And so it's frustrating to me that even at the level of the junior age, they're not getting the right recommendations and that it's just accepted that it, you don't get your period. And I know it's annoying. It is for us females. It's it's okay, you have your period and there's all the things that go along with that um, in terms of getting ready to compete and cramps and everything. But I think the education needs to be, this is a good thing because it's giving you positive hormones from a female and male perspective to develop into an elite athlete. So so just, just on that then, and you spoke earlier about how you feel lucky that your development was later and you, you said you got to the Olympics at 31. By that time, you're one of 30 in the world and you're, you're 
at the sharp end of the of the spear, as it were. So you're surrounded by, in theory, because <laughs> as we've seen from Kane, this doesn't always work out. Uh, you're surrounded by doctors and physiologists and experts who can guide this process. Now you're talking about your coaching experience in 2019, and it feels a bit disheartening to me that that the, the situation's no different to what it was 20 years ago, or am I misreading that? Well, I think it is different um, because we have more education on it. So I'm having the conversation with my athletes. Did anyone have my those coaches, conversations with you when you were a 17-year-old? No, Okay. absolutely not. Yeah. And so that's why I think it's different is there are more people that are being educated about it. And here we are talking about it. Mm. There's now social media that can get information much, much quicker than it could 20 years ago. So I do think that it's different and that we're having the conversations. We just need more people to have the knowledge, to have the conversations in the right way to address it so that it becomes um, not a stigma. It's it's a normal conversation we have with athletes about that and, and we're getting them to the right places. Mm. I, I suppose the sort of layman's question is here is that I've never been an elite athlete. In fact, I'm as far away from elite as you can get. But <laughs> what, what I'm interested in is that is there not weight loss and a reduced weight and body composition? The thinner you are, does it not make you faster? So in the short term, is the performance benefit not there? That's why the athletes are losing weight because they get faster. So what's the incentive for them not to get down in terms of their weight as low as possible? Um, if you're a professional athlete and that's what you do for a living, why would you want to not take every single step to try and get there? Hillary, maybe I can aim that at you first and then Trent. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> well, that's Trent knows the science on it and I'll let him answer that particular, um, the details on that. But no, that isn't quite true. Um, yeah, physics is physics. But I think um, from my perspective, for an example, when I um, came back from my first pregnancy and I was getting ready to um, train for Rio, I my weight got too low um, because, you know, I was nursing and I was at altitude and I was busy and I wasn't sleeping because that's what happens with new moms. And so my weight got down too low. And so that put me at a compromised health and I ended up with stress fractures. And that was the first time in my life that I had so many injuries. And I think it was because I got too light. So there is um, a point where it isn't healthy and you're going to compromise that. So yes, light is fast, but it isn't always the best scenario. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of mis there's a lot of misconceptions around, around body weight. Um, and, and we know that senior women are faster than junior women. We know senior men are faster than junior men and senior women way more than junior women and senior men way more than junior men. And so I don't even like talking about body weight with athletes, but I'm still talking, um, uh, if at all, in many situations, they're just training hard. There's so much other low-hanging fruit you can focus on, train more, sleep more, have good nutrition around you, healthy nutrition, than, than thinking about body comp periodization. It's, it's a very sharp end of the curve for a certain select small group of athletes that are uh, have checked every other box and that are um, uh, in a healthy situation already and that have good positive body image. But um, if you take VO2 max, your mathematician in the room will say, oh, as we drop kilograms of weight to zero, VO2 max will go to infinity. Well, yeah. wait a minute. Um, people at a concentration camps aren't looking too good on VO2 max because they're missing the fact that you've got to produce power and force yeah. to produce 
to produce wattage and speed. There's a muscular component to this performance um, envelope. And so without that discussion and the fact that maybe increasing your weight through muscle mass, you will actually run faster, which I've seen over and over and over again, by the way, um, you're missing the entire point and you're down a slippery, slippery slope where it just doesn't even make sense anymore. And so there's a whole bunch more there to like unpack if you want, but I think um, there, there are some major misconceptions. And, and even when you talk about body composition or not, uh, is mismanaged and, and, and not managed well um, in the literature, or in, sorry, in the real world. That said, we would have our you know, heads in the sand if we don't look at the cross-sectional data on typical phenotypic ranges that excel in sport. It's a range, it's not a set number. But there are certain types of phenotypes and certain watts per kg that you need to hit in cycling if you expect to be a Grand Tour uh, winner. Uh, there's other sports where you got to weigh in, whereas you yeah. don't compete. Yeah. And those are the reality of us working with athletes at the front lines is is trying to thread that needle between health and performance. Yeah, so, so I, would, I would like to delve into it at least one more level before we get on to some of the prevention and, and the diagnostic stuff, which I think will be interesting. And to do that, I want to play devil's advocate a little bit, and I want to use a paper called Case Study, Body Composition, Periodization, and Olympic-Level Female Middle-Distance Runner Over a Nine-Year Career. So for the listeners, this is a... <laughs> Who wrote that, I wonder? This is an article published by one Trent Stellingworth, and it was published last year in 2018 in the International Journal of Sports Nutrition and Exercise Metabolism. And in case you haven't guessed yet, the Olympic-Level Female Middle-Distance Runner is Hillary. And figure two of that paper, I'm sure you know it, um, you'll see where I'm going with this, shows the relationship between 1500 meter performance and the sum of eight skin folds. And it basically shows that there's a significant positive correlation where as the skin folds get lower, in other words, body fat percentage is being reduced, the time improves. And there's a reasonable scatter around this, this line of best fit. But that's the relationship. So I'm a misguided coach and I'm looking at that and saying this clearly shows me there's evidence that I want to reduce the body fat percentage in my athletes within one athlete in order to optimize performance. How have I got that wrong? So a few things. One, you mentioned the scatter around that line. Yeah. So if we look at all the times Hillary has run, say, under 407, the range in some of eight skin folds is nearly um, 15 millimeters. That is a very large range of optimal performance there at the bottom end where the sum of skin folds is quite, um, quite variable. Yeah. Secondly, as with any linear regression, um, just because you go higher or lower doesn't mean that the relationship continues to go linearly. Um, there is no question in my mind that if the sum of skin folds gets down to 10, 1500 meter race performance is going to be horrible. Uh, you're going to lose significant muscle mass. You're probably going to have a stress fracture. You're going to be uh, uh, increased likelihood um, for injury and illness. And so it's important when looking um, at data like this, especially data that whenever you have a linear um uh, regression in anything in sports and performance <laughs> that uh, you're just careful on your interpretation and that it's not going to continually uh, continue to go linear up or down um, as you proceed up and down the x-axis right okay yeah so i thought it was important because i think 
I think it might have been you actually engaged in a couple of tweet conversations in the aftermath of the Kane story where people come on and they say, but we know that running is weight limited. So what's wrong with the Salazar approach, you know? And, and I think it's important that people understand that you don't, you don't start by setting the bar for mass or skin folds and so forth and then work towards that. You allow those things to happen because you do other things right. Is that a fair, fair summary of that before we go into prevention and diagnosis? Yes, you have nailed that correctly. And, and if you have access or if anyone wants the full article, I'll send it to them because um, in the discussion, we, we spend some time within the word constraints of a, of a paper um, talking about just that, identifying individual um, uh, body composition ranges that work for that athlete over time. And from year to year, you take information and move it forward, but it's all within monitoring health. And yeah. so, um, in fact, you'll see body composition measurements in October because I'm always as interested in the athlete, making sure that they're in a very healthy situation uh, moving forward. Um, again, there are a whole bunch of instances where athletes naturally with no discussion of body composition required get into incredibly high health, high performance situations. Um, what we've also seen over time, or at least I have, is that there seems to be a maturation of body composition that happens throughout a career. And if you look at that paper and you look at, um, um, excuse me, figure one, you can see a maturation of body composition happening over nine years, yeah. uh, but under a situation where Hillary was never amenorrheic, and uh, it was only after the baby that she had um, some injury issues, and uh, yeah, I think part of it was a bit of reds, but also post-baby, everyone has a dip in bone mineral density because you need calcium for baby's bones, and secondly, uh, the hormone relaxant is coursing through your body as well, which uh, causes tendon laxity. Um, so there, there was a complex interplay there of trying to come back after the pregnancy, right? So, um, yeah, like you should never, ever, ever identify some mythical numbers for the athlete and work towards that. That is not the approach that you do. You're, you're looking at, um, at ways to keep the athlete healthy for, um, frankly, their whole career. That should be the goal. And our development coaches, and I think Lauren Fleshman said this, which is spot on, they should be assessed on how many athletes they can deliver healthy to the next stage and whether that um, athlete is happy. I love it. I wish all of our, uh, those were the KPIs for our junior development coaches. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting. Um, so, so on that, because I'm mindful that Mary Kane's story and her, her status, just who she is, gives her story gravity that I hope makes a difference. But listening to this podcast, I hope somewhere is a 17-year-old aspirant distance runner, maybe in maybe in Victoria, maybe here in Cape Town, maybe in South Carolina, and they they may be thinking, well, I'm under pressure from my coach or myself or my peers, whatever, and I don't have access to this kind of measurement and this the expertise that that Hillary's benefited from. So, what are some of the what are some of the practical things that they need to be mindful of? in order to stay clear of these these potholes on their pathway. Do you want to take a go at that first? And sure. Then I, can yeah, I, I don't think, I think that's the norm, that most people wouldn't have experts around them. So I think it's important that these young athletes, um, as a female, you look at how, 
Have you had your period? Do you get it regularly? Um, how's your recovery? Are you just exhausted all the time or are you able to get to workouts feeling strong and fresh and then recovering from them? Of course, we know that distance um, endurance sport is fatiguing, but you should see that you're improving and that you're making steady improvements through competition and training. Um, and that how is your sleep? Are you able to sleep? Are you getting enough sleep? All those things are really important. And then if you're not looking at, are you getting enough energy? Are you eating enough to make those things optimized? And so I have the conversation of what with my athletes on, okay, what is your intake? What are you getting food right after training? Are you eating enough at meals? And if you increase this, how do you feel? Because I've had athletes that aren't sleeping well or um, aren't optimizing that and they're not recovering and they're really lagging in training. So that's, I think, an easy fix. And then if they have access to blood results, maybe getting their iron tested and um, some of those parameters can be marked by just a regular physician. Another big red flag to add to that is um, multiple stress fractures and especially stress fractures um, uh, that are in, you know, femoral head or uh, cuboid or, or higher risk type of bones. And so it's important to, um, to look at that as well. Cause if you're, if you're a female athlete that, um, is missing multiple menstrual cycles and you've had multiple stress fractures, that is not normal. You need to seek out information and help. And if you're not getting that from your coach, um, go to the IOC website. Margot Mountjoy is working on a portal there for Reds. Go to the British Journal of Sports Medicine and have a look at the free download of the consensus statement last year in 2018 on Reds and and get information. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up actually. So there's You've, you've said it a few times now, REDS, Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. And um, there are two papers. The initial paper was 2014, and then the 2018 update came out, both authored by Margot Mountjoy. Both are freely available. And as far as scientific papers go, they're quite readable. So I would encourage anyone, anyone at all, who's coaching a parent of a young athlete, male or female, to go and have a look at this paper because they're quite dense and full of good information. One of the things that strikes me about the field is that the, the, the concept of red specifically is that there's still not really a, a, a predictive value in, in measurement. So where, where are we on, on being able to predict it? Like you've spoken about stress fractures of the femoral head. I feel like that's probably pretty far along on, along on the journey. Like that's got to be maybe last stage, right? Or does that sometimes happen first? How does this develop over time, this reds? Yeah, um, there's a there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, first and foremost, humans are incredibly um, complex and adaptable, and because they're so adaptable, um, basal metabolic rate or resting metabolic rate slows, quickly shifts to conserve energy. So, just changes in body weight alone, like uh, uh, down, and aren't necessarily a great indicator. Um, oral contraceptives or IUDs can mask what the menstrual cycle actually is doing. So. Um, you have to be careful there. Um, what, what the field is moving towards is probably an accumulation of high, medium, and low risk factors. And the more you accumulate, the higher your risk for having significant issues. Um, the um, clinical assessment tool, the CAT, that came out of the REDS assessment in 2014, um, I was just, Margot's Canadian, I was just talking with her at the conference in Montreal last week. 
the IOC is looking to redo the CAT with this expert group um, probably in the fall of 2020. And so that assessment tool and the risk factors um, will be uh, redone. And we've already had lots of discussions on, on whether there needs to be an orange light rather than yellow. What it looks, is it different for males and females? Are the risk factors different for weight-supported sports versus um, weight-dependent sports, so runners versus cyclists, for example. Um, when it comes to practicality, um, as you approach the continuum of red, so you're going from a nice green um, level of adequate energy availability down into yellow where you're a bit compromised, all the way to red where um, those are extreme cases, um, such as uh, eating disorders. Um, that's why we, you know there might need to be an orange light in there. Um, uh, things like inconsistent training up and down, uh, high levels of fatigue, um, inconsistent drop off in training or competition performance are probably the earliest flags where the first things I look at with an athlete are sleep and nutrition. Yeah. Are you fueling adequately or before and after training? How is your calories looking throughout the week? Are you missing meals? And what's your sleep looking like? Those are the two big, absolute biggest rocks when it comes to, to recovery. Um, those are early signs that you might be entering into a red situation um, because you're just not fueling the uh, requirements of training quite enough. What also happens quite subconsciously is junior athletes get better and better and they're training more and more and they forget to eat more or they're busy at school or they're busy at, you know, they have a job, they have a life, they, um, they're at school and they're trying to excel in a sport. And so some of this is just quite subconscious. Like if you train more, you need to eat more. Um, that's sometimes forgotten. In female athletes that are not on oral contraceptive, if you're missing more than um, nine uh, menses in the last 12 months, that, that's another really big red flag. Um, in male athletes, it's low sex drive or poor sex drive. And that, that sometimes is a harder question to ask um, uh, developing and or senior male athletes. Yeah. But it is a really good flag that if, if you're not interested in sex um, or you don't have morning erections consistently as a 18 to 30 year old and you're feeling fatigued from training, uh, that's another um, that is another red flag that, you know, every male athlete can um um, certainly have a self-assessment on. So there are things in there that don't require expensive equipment and expensive blood work. Um, finally, there are some questionnaires which help assess this as well. The LEAM-Q, low energy availability, or LEAF-Q, uh, low energy availability in females questionnaire. And very soon, um, it's in review, there's going to be a LEAM-Q, so the same questionnaire in males. Um, these questionnaires aren't perfect because humans are complex. But it does stratify you in terms of a bit of a risk factor. And, and I believe uh, those questionnaires will, will become more and more um, open and available um, as the IOC redoes, re, redoes their clinical assessment tool. So there's a lot of information from yeah. top to bottom, but I, I hope that the, the listener can latch on to some of those practical tips. One thing that struck me there is you, you didn't mention, and perhaps, perhaps it is a factor, is what is the positive predictive value of having very low BMI, low body mass, and low body fat percentage? It sounds to me, though, that the list you've given there is the kind of thing that a coach needs to monitor over time because you, you're, you're looking for deviations from baseline. The athlete's sleep patterns change, their training habits, their training performances change. But does a single point in time mass, body fat, or BMI give us any information about who's at risk? 
there's a relationship there, but there is no clear cutoff. And so probably 15 years ago, a real pioneer in the female athlete triad literature is Ann Lauks. And Ann Lauks has some really nice, uh, well, you know, 15-year-old papers showing that the relationship between BMI and even some percent body fat and amenorrhea is not as clear as one would hypothesize. Yeah. There are situations that a female athlete at a BMI of 23, which is pretty high, a uh, rugby player uh, uh, type of level, that if you put them in an energy, low energy availability, they will lose their menstrual cycle. And evolutionarily, that makes sense because we've evolved to store energy very well um, in famines. And so uh, the human body adapts quite quickly to that. And um, so it, it's more about a relative change in those parameters within a given athlete, not some global cutoff. Yeah. Um, uh, although when you get very extremely low in BMI, for sure, there's there, there's deleterious outcomes. But we also have to realize that, um, you know, from genes in the environment, the phenotypic typical Kenyan might be four foot nine inches tall and tiny and have a completely normal menstrual cycle. And you can't compare uh, a typical uh, North American or South African um, Caucasian female to a four foot nine Kenyan, it, it's told you can't do that, and it, it's just it's it's illogical to do that. So there's almost a baseline needed per athlete to try and establish what is normal, I guess, across the elite level, and that's tricky. It, it is very tricky, and it's very yeah. tricky. You know, I haven't said this yet as well. The underlying etiology of Reds and female athlete triad is poor energy availability, and you have to be to, to get energy availability. You have to be able to measure energy intake. Yeah. And exercise energy expenditure. Yep. We're moving targets on both sides, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've quoted many times, to accurately measure energy intake, it's like trying to re- measure rain in a hurricane. It is a, <laughs> it is a mess. It's difficult to do. And to, unless you're using double-label water, it is impressively difficult to measure exercise energy expenditure. And so we're on a paper where um, – and it's just an acute look over four or five days. We believe the chronic indicators of REDS – are much better, like bone mineral density and menstrual status and some of these more that take weeks and months to develop because uh, it's almost impossible outside of a laboratory to accurately measure energy availability in free living athletes. Um, I, I would actually discourage most individuals from trying to do that. I, say, I think what's interesting from a sort of layman's perspective is when, I, when we were preparing for the podcast, I said, is, isn't this just a case of overtraining? But it's not. It's like it's overtraining times times 10 it's kind of the extreme version of that so my question is once you get this condition what is the what is the recovery period required to get through that so it gives people a perspective of how serious it is when it becomes part of that athlete so so, uh, yeah i've reflected a lot from the conference that we had last week where we had a real range of practitioners including some uh, some physiologists and endurance physiologists and coaches and they impressed upon me and i've linked this before oh man, all this blood work, it just looks like overtraining. And in fact, I uh, gave a talk at ACSM this year where I said, does overtraining even exist or is it just under recovery? And yes, mechanical overtraining or injuries certainly exist, but that might be a training problem issue, acute chronic overload, whatever. You've overloaded people too, too quickly. But when we think about under recovery, we think about nutrition and sleep. And I think that the parallels between some of the overreaching, overtraining literature, and if you look closely at the nutrition quantification in those papers, it's it's either poorly done or 
some of the overreached or overtrained groups are actually in a caloric deficit. And so I think that there's there are actually really big parallels here. Um, what was the second part of your question again? Um, oh, how long? Yeah, our time course of recovery information is um, poorly developed, but there are a few papers out there, some of them from Mary Jane D'Souza's group at Penn State. And it, it seems like on the female side, if you've been in a menstrual cycle dysfunction and been amenorrheic uh, for a long time, a couple of years, it may take a year or two years to to reestablish that cycle consistently. Wow. In some athletes where if they've missed just one or two cycles in the summer, which isn't actually qualify for amenorrhea, it seems to come back right away within a, a cycle or two. Hmm. So there's almost like this, miss one or two cycles, you'll get it back in one or two cycles. Miss 48 cycles, it might take 48 cycles to get it back kind of phenomena. Yeah, yeah, it'll never yeah. be that clean, but it, recovery can take um, quite a while. Recovery in males, because of the robustness of testosterone, appears to be much quicker, but our, 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 our science there is just emerging and I don't want to overinterpret it. I think that the key is, and, and, and to maybe conclude on this point, because it reinforces where we began, is that when the problem develops, the reaction time to the problem determines the prognosis. So therefore, the, the most important thing that people can do is to pay attention, to, to <laughs> borrow from my own metaphor, to pay attention to the lighthouse that is Mary Kane's story and then Caro Gouch's story and all the other stories we've seen. So, so, so maybe to the, to the coach, Hillary, like, how, what, what does it take to get that message out to every single coach? I mean, I would love for every coach in the world to listen to this podcast and to take the words that you're about to say to heart. But what are some of the barriers to getting that message across? And how can we do better at not necessarily even preventing the condition, but reacting to it so quickly that it doesn't become a clinical burden on the athlete? Yeah, I think education is very important. Um, so the you know national sport organizations need to think about adding this component to their coach education training, and um, and putting that to junior coaches because I think they're the ones that are probably most crucial in um, the athlete's development, and um, and then you know, we need to empower athletes to make their own decisions and to understand this concept. So we, the, what the IOC is doing with the consensus statement and what other people in the area are doing in terms of putting out education that is in lay language is very important to be able to educate these athletes to know when they're, they might be in reds. So they might not be able to communicate it to their their coaches, but at least they can do a self-assessment and, and understand what is healthy. And then all these female athletes, I would say some of the things that disappoint me most is when the elite athletes post pictures of themselves online showing their leanest times of the year. Yeah. And what I think needs to happen is that Young athletes need to understand that this isn't the reality the most most of the time of year. That the elite athletes are looking normal and healthy, hopefully, if they're getting to that level, 
most of the year. It's only in this competition phase that they're looking this lean and mean. And so I think as female elite athletes, we need to show that in the social media spheres or talk about it to say that this isn't normal to be this lean all year round. And young athletes shouldn't aspire to that at that age because there is an important development curve that needs to happen. That's really that's really interesting. It's almost like, and I hope this doesn't sound flippant, but remember there was a campaign for a while, like the hashtag no makeup selfie to try and change the perception of what people look like normally. It's almost that scenario where where we've got a, it's like a, a body perception dysfunction societally because we're only ever presented with one side of the argument and it's the it's the seven out of 365 day a year argument instead of the other side of it. So that would be quite an interesting campaign. I, I wish that a sponsor would take that up. <laughs> that, would yeah. be, that would be like, I mean, let's not go to brands because <laughs> the brand is how this thing started. But <laughs> that would be the kind of thing I think a sponsor would really should really get behind. I think that's a great idea. You know, we're, we're under underfunded in REDS research. There's not a lot of spots where you can you can get money to do the work. And last week in Montreal, we had Margot Mountjoy there. We had Kate um, Ackerman from Harvard there. We had Kirsty Elliott Sale, who does a lot of research on, on female menstrual cycle and oral contraceptive and bone health. And, you know, we were talking like, man, wouldn't it be unbelievable if a major brand stepped up yeah. and flipped the script and said, hey, we'll, we'll put... 1.52, it's a drop in the hat for this major brand into research, into awareness, into education. Here's a third party group that's involved already with the IOC and REDS. Um, you guys get together, you guys figure out what research needs to be done. You guys figure out the best platforms for communication. Um, so if anyone on that major brand that uh, uh, is listening, contact those names that I just mentioned or contact me because <laughs> We could we could do so much. Like I'm scraping the barrel on like side funds to do Reds research here in Canada, and uh, it it we, we need we need company involvement to help yeah. continue to move this narrative. Yeah, uh, and then I have one last question for Hillary. I I was listening to a podcast um, earlier this week, and the writer of the Kane story in the New York Times, Lindsay Krause, was talking about when she was at Harvard. They'd ask her if she'd had her periods, and if she said no, they stopped her running. I don't know if you heard that. But that was their, that was their policy. They wouldn't allow you to compete unless you were shown to be healthy. Is that, is that a solution? I mean, I know it sounds obvious, but, but if, the, if the athlete says no, I feel like you've got to do more than just stop them competing. Well, absolutely. You, <laughs> yeah, um, because it's also important to educate the athlete and create buy-in and trust, that they're trusting that you want to help them instead of just setting these limits and saying, okay, if you, you don't have your period, you're not competing because they don't know what to do. Yeah. And you have to help them. And we need to, like I said, empower these athletes that we are going to wrap you up in support and we're going to help you to do this so that you can get better, not because you're being punished, but because we really want to see you through to the senior level and we want to know that your long-term health is um, taken care of. So I don't think that it, that's the greatest solution. I do think there's times where, um, you know, if you look at the Reds protocols, that they shouldn't be competing. Um, but I don't think that that's a blanket situation that um, works. Mm. Hilary and Trent, thank you very much for your time. The good news is that having listened to Trent's description of red S or reds in men, I am 100% not in reds. 
post in your uh, description, so I'm very happy to report that. But thank you very much for your time. I really <laughs> hope too much information. Too much information, yeah. but we're all about information <laughs> on this show. But thank you very much for your time. I, th I think it, what we want really is to create almost this groundswell of information. And I think hopefully through you guys and hopefully this podcast we'll be able to do it. So thank you very much. Yeah, and let's get a brand to put money behind the health of athletes instead of the medals. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Very good. Thank you. So many thanks to Trent and Hillary for some amazing insight into this condition. And I think my take-home message from this is that, and, and I wasn't sure whether I was hearing Hillary correct here, but maybe, Ross, you can kind of explain it for me. Is it fair to say that what she's saying in, in elite athletes is that closer to competition time, being in this energy deficient state, in other words, super lean and super in shape, is something that is part of elite athletics, but it's not something that happens all the time? Yes. So an athlete might well go into energy deficiency to the point that they then lose weight, their body fat percentage will be at its lowest when they compete. That's, In fact, if that's how your season looks, then you've probably periodized it well. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to lose their periods and go into a, a state of where you'd say they have the shred S. So that depends obviously on what's preceded it, how the body's adapted and how the training cycle has gone. But remember, the athlete is going to periodize the training. And that means that at certain times of the year, there'll be very high volumes. And at other times, there'll be high volumes, high intensity. And as they get closer to competition, the volume will drop, the intensity may go up even further. And that could very well push the person to a point of energy deficit, yeah. weight loss, body fat percentage loss, and possibly, and it's documented in Trent's paper on Hillary, uh, the loss of her periods. So it's 2.8 times per year she lost her period in that, in that study. So, so it can happen, but... It's under the guidance, the control of expert qualified people whose primary interest is in the health of that athlete. And so I would imagine that if it persisted for three months, which is, by the way, the clinical definition of this, this hypothalamic amenorrhea we spoke about in the introduction, then they would say actually something's not right here and you're heading for a performance decline because your energy availability has now actually gone too low. And I think one of the things that comes through very strongly from both of them is they're real advocates of this. And I'm Trent talking about the fact that they need more funding around this area. And I, and I think if there's one message that's come from this entire broadcast is that this condition is not something that just affects elite athletes. It's, it's affecting right down through the scale. And it also means that at high school level, young athletes, men and women, um, there needs to be more care taken about looking after their, their long-term health. Much more because both in scale, because of the sheer numbers of, of recreational and club and high school runners compared to elite and concept, I think it's a more vulnerable population, which might sound weird because you think, well, the elite athlete's the one who's driving themselves to get down in weight for performance. But I think people put a lot of pressure on themselves to lose, lose weight. I mean, you see it in schools all the time, sadly. Um, and let's be honest, women and men are under pretty severe body pressures in society from magazines and media and so on. And the problem with your non-elite athlete is that they may not pick it up as quickly because they yeah. don't necessarily always have four pairs of expert eyes on them. Um, and so left to their own devices may be unaware. And again, I come back to that stat and I mentioned it talking to the, the, the Stellingworths. If almost half of high school girls think that it's normal to lose their period, then we've got a problem. Yeah. And so education is really important and if you are listening to this as a parent as a coach of young girls um even a, even if you're an athlete yourself and anything that trent or hillary or, or myself have said 
that, that resonates with you and your concern, then speak to someone because yeah. this is common. It happens. It's not a sign of something going wrong. As I said, this was probably crucial to our survival yeah. evolutionary-wise. But just talk to someone and see if you can sort it out because the, the price to pay is too large. Don't forget, you can have conversations with us on Twitter. Sports SciPod is our Twitter handle, and uh, Ross and I will monitor that quite regularly. So you have any questions, any comments, um, any insights that you might want to share with us, so we feel free to do that, and we often report on those on our podcast. Uh, but for the moment, big thank you to Professor Ross Tucker and especially to Trent and Hillary for their insight today, and we'll speak to you next time. Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.